when my partner and I were first together, our parents used to talk about us with their straight friends and their coworkers by making sure that they knew, first of all, that we were just like everyone else. You know, they'd say they pay their taxes. This desire to point to our sameness, how we were just like them, was motivated by love. And it was an attempt to activate love. They were trying to overcome what they imagined or, or knew for sure that their friends were thinking, trying to address whatever fears they had or image that came to mind when they thought about lesbians. If we were more the same than we were different, if we, then we would be less scary, less other, more human. The Unitarian Universalist minister and historian Mark Morrison-Reed talks about the central task of the religious community as revealing the bonds that bind each to all. That is the connectedness and the relationship across everyone everywhere that compels us to act on one another's behalf. This is the impulse behind the claim that we are basically the same. It is a way to invoke relatedness and the duty to care, or at least the duty not to cause harm. 20 years later, our parents don't do this too much anymore. They and a bunch of others making the same argument seem to have convinced sufficient numbers of straight people that the gay agenda was often as boring as the straight one. I mean, we do pay our taxes. And this works relatively fine for those of us who successfully pass or code switch our way in the straight community, those of us whose gender expression perfectly lines up with the gender we were assigned at birth and society's expectations, those of us who are monogamous and aiming for marriage and or parenthood, those of us who are white and who are citizens, you probably get my point. When the bonds that bind each to all are grounded only in the ways that we are alike or the idea that we must like each other, someone is always going to remain outside that circle. That is, someone is always going to be the definition of the regular human. And then someone else is going to be the irregular maybe even the subhuman or undermensch. That's the scientific field, so-called scientific field of eugenics, what they called it, the undermensch or undermension as the Nazis came to apply this whole idea in their philosophy, taking it to an extreme, which all they did was pick it up directly from the Jim Crow laws of the United States. In her book, Cast, Isabel Wilkerson delves deeply into this history. If you haven't yet found your place in our common conversation around cast, I encourage you to check out foothillsuu.org forward slash cast. In an accessible, compelling narrative, Wilkerson offers a framework to help to understand how we have found ourselves caught in a culture that tends to rank another's humanness based upon a certain sameness. 
a culture where some are perpetually assessed to be insufficiently human and so therefore outside the circle of care or love. Now relying on sameness to determine a duty to care or the presence of love is not unusual, of course. I'd actually say it's, it's more like the norm. Despite political or relig religious slogans that affirm justice for all, as nonviolence expert and activist Kazu Haga writes, when we say all, how often do we really mean all? Usually what we mean to say is that we are fighting for justice for all of our people, the people we like, the people on our side, and too often justice for our people comes at the expense of those people. And when we are able to defeat those people, then our people will have justice. I think we all do this intentionally or unintentionally, consciously or subconsciously. We have been trained through our culture and rewarded in our politics, maybe now more than ever before, to set limits around who we actually mean when we say all. I actually caught myself in this mindset earlier this week when I was working on vaccine equity. I felt that one of the groups was working against the goals that I felt were critical. And so I wanted to shut them out. If they could be defeated, then our people would win. I felt pretty righteous about my outrage for a while, my strategy for success, until I heard myself talking to a friend on the phone, trying to explain my uh, strategy for how to defeat them. And suddenly I was like, hmm, maybe there's another way. I feel some shame admitting this to you as it goes against a core commitment of our universalist faith. That is that when we say all, we actually mean all. Universalism as a religious tradition started off as a theological claim about life after death. Our religious forebears asserted that there was no way that an all-loving God would damn any of God's own people to eternal punishment and torment. The idea was inconsistent with love in an ultimate sense. So universalism was a claim that whatever destiny any of us is meant for, all of us are meant for that. In the 20th century, though, this afterlife affirmation became instead a claim and a commitment that we make about this life, an affirmation that, as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever lines we may consciously or subconsciously seek to draw between us and them, enemy and friend, good or bad, worthy or unworthy, there is no escaping or undoing how interconnected we are, how interdependent. No matter how different or disagreeable, no one is less or more human than any other of us. No one. The outcome of this theological claim is what King described as the beloved community. Beloved, 
as in fueled by and held together by the promises of love. Not just any love though, but what he called agape love. Whereas other types of love are directed at particular individuals, like romantic love or the love of friends, King described agape as the sort of love that, quote, makes no distinction between a friend and enemy. It is an overflowing love that is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. It is the love of God operating in the human heart. King went so far to even call it disinterested love because it is the sort of love that's there whether or not it is loved back. And I find it helpful to remember that we are not responsible for generating this love in all cases. Instead, our work is just to show up on its behalf and to further its reach. It's helpful to remember this when we encounter people who we find distinctly difficult to love, that we need not generate that love that is unconditional and universal. It is there nonetheless, including for us. Maybe the, this, the fact that this is way harder than it sounds explains why while we can glimpse pieces of the beloved community and these glimpses and their beauty compel us to keep moving forward. It is resoundingly a vision for the future. King was in describing the beloved community doing the life-saving work of moral imagination, the sort of work that moves us out of the limitations of the here and now into what is possible. Imagine, in the beloved community, all people share equally in the wealth of the earth and all people care for the earth. There is no hunger or poverty or homelessness. There's no racism or other prejudice and there is no war. Which is not the same as saying there is no conflict. King understood that conflict is inevitable in human communities that embrace rather than shun difference. It's just that these conflicts are resolved through a commitment to nonviolence and grounded in a mutual respect for one another's dignity, which is again, not the same as mutual agreement or even liking each other or even spending all that much time together. As Kazuhaga reminds us, the beloved community, it's a big place. So we can have love for people and they can live all the way over there in beloved community. I so appreciate this reminder for many reasons, including that first it affirms the role of boundaries that Sean and Elaine talked about last Sunday. And in affirming beloved community's bigness, it reminds us that in the beloved community, there is enough of everything for everyone. It is a big tent with big resources and big love. 
in the beloved community. After all, no one hoards resources and power is shared. We practice power with rather than power over. And there is no need to compete for some small slice of a pie that's already stingy and insufficient. We can instead lift each other up, ensuring that each person and each community has what they need. This is one of the most radical ideas embedded in this vision of beloved community because it stands in direct contrast to 21st century capitalism, where we are taught that there is never enough, that you need to hustle to get what you need, and if you don't have what you need, that is on you. I've seen this too in the work for vaccine equity. Each organization is so accustomed to needing to compete for funding to meet the needs of their part of the community. The idea that we could work together for a common good requires trusting that there will be enough for everyone. Enough vaccines, enough funding support, enough acknowledgement of the labor and expertise and care to go around. Given the realities of funding, the bureaucracy of government, and the overwhelming number and loud presence of white folks in Northern Colorado, I get why these communities who serve people of color and immigrants would be doubtful and suspicious and be on the verge of pulling out of collaboration and instead needing to look out for themselves. The system we have created rewards competition and isolation and the loudest and the fastest movers get the attention from those who hold power over without truly any idea or model for power with. This slow, messy, non-hierarchical, emergent collaboration seeking to creatively meet our shared needs means it's really unclear, for example, who is exactly going to sign a memo of understanding, for example, or receive funds with an appropriate 501c3. In the end, however, this slow, messy, and hard to document type of collaboration for the common good across deep differences and divide, the work of inviting folks out to tea and to dinner, the work of building relationships that endure, this is the work that it actually takes to build the beloved community. It is agape love, not in the generic idealistic sense, but agape love in the very particular, where you have to find ways to overcome your instinct to defeat the person who annoys you or who seems like they're actively working against you and instead find an authentic way to widen the circle so it includes them too. And by you, I obviously mean me. The term beloved community was actually coined by philosopher Josiah Royce in the early 20th century. Royce spoke of beloved community as that community that is worthy of our ultimate loyalty. What he called our loyalty of loyalties. Unlike partial communities that sought to put limps seeks to be put limits around love or duty. The beloved community is that community that keeps drawing the circle wider and wider still. It is the loyalty that is based not in our sameness, but to the love that holds us across our differences, 
to call this love holy, to pledge our allegiance to it, which in turn requires critical awareness of ourselves, our story, I mean our own tribe and our own trauma our own tribe so that we can be aware of our implicit bias that is the hierarchy that we hold deep in our brains and in our bones for who is more or less our people and in turn perhaps more or less human. We need to become more aware of our own sense of our own tribe so that we can undo these stories and begin to learn a new one. And then we need to become more aware of our own trauma the struggles that we carry from our own lifetimes, those we inherit across generations. We need to know when we are acting out of our own wounds rather than our hope. We need to know so that we can heal backwards and forwards and together. Grounding our understanding of beloved communities, uh, community and Royce's original ideas of loyalty reminds us that the heart of beloved community is not understanding an idea or believing in an idea, but a steadfast, unshakable commitment, a tough, enduring love. Martin Luther King Jr. was very clear that beloved community is actually possible in this life, but it is only possible when a critical mass of people make that deep commitment based in that understanding of what it means to truly be loyal to this love. This commitment is what drives the proposal for an eighth principle, because our principles are the covenant that we make as Unitarian Universalists, our promises to ourselves, our promises to each other, our promises to life itself. The eighth principle says, we commit our loyalty to the building of the beloved community, our loyalty to the love that binds each to all, the love that meets us across all of our beautiful diversity. Now, I wish I could say that making the commitment to the tough love of beloved community is the hard part. Like the vote that we will have in May on the eighth principle is like the end, but really it's just the beginning because the hardest part is what comes next. When we live as if all actually means all, there is no easy way. The work of justice often asks us to do the impossible, hard, terrifying things. We will risk things that actually matter, especially our own comfort, our own sense of order, or control, we'll risk our own safety, our own privilege, we will risk our own hearts. But the good news is that along with the hardest part also comes the best part. This glimpse into the sort of freedom and salvation that is truly possible, that is freedom that is not partial or conditional, but truly unconditional, transformational, and universal the tough love that saves us all. May it be so.